0: Today, we are in Genesis 18, 16 through 33. Um, I'll be reading ESV version. I guess that's repetitive. All right, starting at 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still, Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am, I who am, but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said again, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, Lord, oh, let the, oh let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went at his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God. As we jump into a series this August titled by Faith, we're going to be looking at some of the most Probably questionable, alarming, if if not the most kind of bizarre prayers in the Old Testament by uh, the prophets. And so, before we jump in, I wanted to bring up um, John, who's heading out. As as Podge is across the world, nine hours ahead. John's heading just down south a little ways, crossing the border into Mexico. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing as we? Sure. Uh, pray me for you. and
2: Alyssa and Melissa, my two uh, granddaughters that I bring to church sometimes are going to an orphanage down just north of Ensenada, Uh, we're going with uh, Christian Life Center and uh, also with North County Christian Fellowship. So this is something that uh, Pastor Guy from CLC has done for quite a few years. So uh, I've I've shared several times that I I was done with Mexico and I told the Lord I would support the ministries down there that I do. But I was so done. And about three weeks ago, Alyssa gets on the track to come to church and says, Grandpa, I want to do a youth mission. (laughs) And I just laughed. (laughs) It's like, okay, if she goes, that means I go too. So, Anyway, looking forward to going down there and ministering to the staff and 120 orphaned kids. Uh, These kids are not kids without parents, typically. Usually they're kids whose parents are too poor to afford them to take care of them, or uh, they've been abused, kind of like our foster care system here. So looking forward to see God do great things, not only in me and Alyssa and Melissa and the team, but also in the people that we serve.
1: Amen. So as we go out today, some of you are going down the road and praying for opportunities to, to share about Jesus with them. And as John takes a little longer drive with Melissa and Alyssa and a group of other believers in our, our county, we want to lift you guys up in prayer. So will you pray with us? God, we lift up John to you and, and all the team And uh, it's exciting to see just different churches rally together and go down and love on these kids as your word reminds us and calls us to care for the orphans and the widows and their oppression and plight. And Lord, as we see John and Melissa and Alyssa, and and as they go down, you've prepared a work for them to do, and you've prepared an opportunity to reveal yourself to them. We pray that that would be seen, experienced, and as they serve, um, may they continue to, to see you, Jesus, serving them and giving them the strength, giving them the ability and the words to encourage those um, weak or hopeless and give them hope that's only found in you, Jesus. And we pray for the team. There'd be unity in your spirit there and and shared story of how you've changed them, transformed them, and and that's why they're going down to meet with other believers and care for those who have yet to believe in hopes that they would know you, Jesus, and your work in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right there. So as we jump into Genesis, chapter 18, and we see this prayer. Growing up, it was not all that odd to see prayers occur uh, before sporting events. And of late, coaches have have been fired, resigned in legal battles because they they prayed with their team. And and there's still room for freedom of of speech and, and prayer And so they've won these battles, not without expense and time. And we see a a new um, data from Barna shows the majority of Americans still 64% pray to God at least once a week, okay? I mean, let's not get crazy. Um, Which is just mind-blowing, and it's down from 83% in 2012. So in a lot of ways, when you look at the culture, you see the reality that a lot of people just said they were... Christians because they were American. And and now it's been clear that either that you're following Jesus and he's your Lord and you're, you're talking to him, you're praying to him, you're trusting him, or you've realized, hey, I can live my life however I want and do whatever I want. And I don't need him directing me. I don't need him being my Lord. And so we see right away this very intimate, very bold, very direct conversation that is based on faith. Abraham has faith. Abraham has this relationship with God. He knows God. And we see that here's an opportunity where God's like, should I tell him what I'm going to do? Okay, I'll tell him. And Abraham just jumps in and starts having this conversation, this prayer, and this bold request. And for those of us who pray, oftentimes it's a time of need, a, a challenging circumstance where we turn to God in prayer. And and many will, will, will often cry out in a similar time whether they believe in God or not, but because they're at their wit's end. The fact is though, faith is a key ingredient to our relationship with God. And it's not whether we're following Jesus or not that would indicate if we have faith, but it indicates where we put our faith. Because Believers and unbelievers, we all have faith, and you exercised it as you got in your car, you sat down on the chair, you're, you're putting your trust in that thing to do what you expect. We see that without faith, it's impossible to please God, so why would we pray with little to no faith? Why would we say, I'm going to put my trust in my own works or my own plan instead of fully trusting God and His promises, which... It's hard to trust God and His promises if you don't know God and if you don't know His promises through His Word. And so we see this relationship revealed. So the first question, though, is what is faith? Before we dive into, by faith Abraham does these things and says these things. We see the definition in Hebrews 11, one Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the confidence of things not yet seen. So we could paraphrase it and say, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. So simply put, faith is the confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen. So when we pray, we have to have that faith. Otherwise, it's just, hey, God, I hope that I have a safe trip. Hey, God, I hope there's an opportunity for me to share the gospel. Do we really have faith? Do we have the confidence that when we say God, you want the whole world to know you and I'm going to go out this door into the world that doesn't know you and I want you to give me an opportunity to share you with them. God, I need you to give me contentment because I'm discontent. God, I I need this from you and it's according to his will. Are you having that faith, that confidence that it's going to happen? It gives us assurance about things we can't see. Through their faith in Hebrews 11, the people in days of old, earned an amazing reputation. You can read through it and all the things Abraham did. Faith is this confidence or assurance based on the data before us. It's not a blind faith. It's, hey, this is who you are, God. These are your promises. This is your character. I'm putting my faith in you because look at all the evidence. Why would I live my life apart from you? Even when there's things we can't see or verify, we have assurance of those things like grace, forgiveness, heaven, hell, the Holy Spirit that indwells us because we know the character of God who speaks to us through his word that these things are so. And so we see the first point. By faith, Abraham dares to ask hard questions of God. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with God where you're asking him to do pretty much the unthinkable, unimaginable I have that on a daily basis. And sometimes I'm like, I I'm feel a little guilty asking for more because you've given me so much. And then I read this prayer and I'm like, man, I've not been asking enough of God. I need to start asking more. And if you're around me, we were in in uh, Florida and we went into the surf shop and we got these printed shirts and I ask big questions all the time, you know? And so I said, hey, where's the sale rack? Is, I need some new board shorts. Is there a discount? And the guy walks me over and he's like, ah, oh, there's nothing good here. You need to go pick out a brand new pair and I'll give you a discount on the brand new pair of shorts. It's like, sweet. So my father-in-law was like, wait, what? How'd you get that? I'm like, yeah, you just ask. And most people don't do that. I don't know why you don't ask. Like, that's how you get deals. You just say, hey, I need a deal. And they go, okay. Or they say no, which is where you started from, right? But they're board shorts, They're stilly, stupid board shorts. Why don't we go to God and say, God, I need you to fix my marriage. This is an important thing and you care way more about my marriage than board shorts. God, I need you to fix this relationship. God, I'm handling money poorly. God, I need wisdom. God, I need contentment. Why don't we go to God with the big things and ask? Maybe you need to practice by going to Starbucks or going to a surf shop. Hey, I need to deal on board shorts and just start asking. If you, if you can't bring a big question to God, just start with these requests. But here we see Abraham gets a glimpse into what God's about to do, which is a silly thing for Abraham to overhear, right? Because if you ever have someone say, hey, do you want me to tell you what I'm about to do? You're like, yes, tell me, I want to know. And God's like, I knew you'd want to know. Here's what I'm going to I'm going to go take out some and go more. They're whore, it's evil. They're doing all these horrible things. I've heard about it. I'm just going to go double check, make sure all of the wicked and injustice is actually happening and then I'm going to wipe them out. And what takes place is pretty interesting because as Abraham begins this hard question after hard question that he dares to bring to God, we see this real relationship. Abraham knows God is a living God, a real God, infinitely loving, infinitely holy at the same time this incredibly bold prayer. He prays missionally. See, we have a tendency to pray individually about our needs, about our day. And we're thankful that we got to go to In-N-Out or thankful we live by the beach and it's not as humid as Florida, but we're thankful for this little tiny things. But we don't think big. We don't think huge, God-sized, hey, you want the whole world to know you. What is that gonna take? That's gonna take a lot of time, a lot of, talent and a lot of resources we better start praying and God's shares with with Abraham I'm going to take these people out and Abraham's like whoa 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 I've I've face to face with God and all he he prays for as we see he uses his face-to-face relationship with God to leverage for the whole city for Sodom and Gomorrah, wait a minute, let's think about this. Let's think about who you are, God, and who they are and what's about to happen. What he's praying for is amazing. We see in verse 20, there's been an outcry against Sodom, God says. The, the word outcry in Hebrew means that the cries of the victims of violent injustice. So when God says there's an outcry, what he means is there are poor and marginable people being trampled to death in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a very urban society that's oppressing and marginalizing the poor and the weak and god says i need to go check for myself but i see what's happening the violence the injustice and i'm going to judge it and abraham knows exactly how wicked those cities are so what does he say he says forgive him spare him in verse 24 the word spare means to forgive why would abraham say that why would he act like a priest? And some of you say, well, obviously he's going to stand up for Sodom and Gomorrah because if you read the story, you know he has a nephew there, Lot, who has a wife and two daughters. So Abraham has family. At minimum, four people. And that's the reason God's ask, Abraham's asking God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That can't be the, the reason. I'll tell you why in a minute here. If all he wanted was to get Lot and his family out, he would have just asked point blank, hey God, before you go, take out Sodom and Gomorrah, just get my nephew and his family out. And then you can, yeah, the rest of them kill him. That's a clear, direct request that would get a yes or no answer. But that's not the petition that Abraham asks. We see here, Abraham is going before God knowing it's dangerous to go before a holy and just God. He's taken his life into his hands and he urges God to bless, to forgive, to pardon Sodom and Gomorrah as a whole. Abraham goes face to face with God And he's not concerned with himself. He's not there with a grocery list of, hey, give me this. And I know you said you're going to bless my family, but uh, also I need a new donkey or I need a new camel. Could you hook me up with that? Like soon, God, I need this. And I don't know what's going to happen because our tent fell down last night in the storm, we need a new tent. He doesn't go there with his personal needs. He lays himself out in prayer for the people around him. And these aren't good people. These are evil people. And yet Abraham loves them and he cares about them. He cares for the whole city Is that how you pray? Are your prayers influenced so much by the depravity and the needs around you in our city, in our county, in our state? Are your prayers influenced so much that you're praying for God to forgive them and for them to be saved? It doesn't matter who you are. If you're liberal, conservative, white, black, Hispanic, or Asian, there's people you don't like. There's places you don't go, even in our small town. Because I don't like being there. I don't want to be around that crowd. I don't like them. But do you pray for those people, especially the people you don't like? Do you pray with this kind of humble boldness and liveliness? No, of course not. We don't pray for them. We pray that God makes our life easier and more comfortable. But Abraham prays like that. Abraham acts like a priest and makes this bold request. And second, we see by faith, Abraham appeals to the righteousness of God and the justice of God. We see by faith, Abraham appeals to the righteousness of God. What is the secret to his prayer life that's so outwardly focused and unselfish, so lively and adventurous and passionate and so risky? What this tells me is not something I've ever thought of as I read this text. I didn't come with, oh man, I'm gonna preach on this because I always keep telling Matt about it and now I get to preach and I found a text that supports this idea. When When I come to the scriptures, I'm like, hey God, what are you telling me And what are we going to learn about you and your character here? The secret to Abraham's prayer life is his theological depth. He knows God's character. He knows who God is and what his promise is. And that's why by faith he can come to God and appeal to God. On his character. On his righteousness. That's what makes this prayer so profoundly impactful is because of its theological foundation. He reasons through knowing God. That's what theology means. It's your view of God, your understanding of God. And his view, his understanding is so great, he's focusing on the attributes of God and he's praying on the basis of God's nature. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for will actually happen. He's praying by faith, having confidence that he hopes because of God's righteousness and his justice, but also his mercy he can have this conversation and see the outcome of Sodom and Gomorrah's despair. It gives us assurance about things we can't see. So first of all, there's these two things he's putting before us. Number one, it's God's nature. And the other, it's his mercy and his justice. So what he says here. It's so risky as he looks at the characteristics of God in verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So he appeals first to the nature of God as judge, seeking justice. That's a rhetorical question, which means, of course, God is a just God, and he's going to judge rightly. Abraham wants to get reprieve for Sodom and Gomorrah, but one thing he knows is God is not going to shrug off his justice. He's a righteous God as well. And we hope he's a righteous judge. We look at the world and all the injustice and all the wrongs being done and the injustice that keeps happening. And it seems like more and more what's been happening comes to light and it's not good, it's bad, and it's injustice. And instead of acknowledging it, what happens is our culture redefines it and calls evil good and good evil because there's so much, you can't hide it anymore. Eventually it comes to light. And, and and Abraham's coming to God going, wait a minute, you're so just. Okay, let's let's look at this for a minute. And if there's no God of justice, there's no hope for the world. So it's a good thing you're a God, the one God who is just. But the other thing Abraham knows is God is a God of grace. In verse 18 through 19, God tells Abraham, remember Abraham, I chose you so that through you, all the nations of the earth would be saved and blessed. I'm going to bring my salvation into the world through you and your family. Abraham, I've chosen you to be a blessing to the nations. Maybe when Abraham was first chosen, like me, you're like, wow, I'm pretty... I'm I'm hot stuff. God saw me out of all the world and he chose me and my family. We're going to hook the whole world up with blessing because I'm so good. Like I'm amazing. I caught the attention of God. But quickly that thought would have diminished because he failed many times. He did a lot of dumb things, even to the point where twice he's like, hey, it's better for us if I'm not Associated with you as, as my wife, Sarah. Go, you know, we're going to go in and you're going to, the king of Egypt's going to take you. And another town, another guy does the same thing. And it's like, Abraham, what are you doing? You're, you're dumb. But he knows that God's a God of grace because God keeps showing up. Abraham says, I know you're a God of justice and that'll never go away, but I also know you're a God of love. And what you love to do is seek people out who need you and you love to spare them when they don't deserve it. In verse 24, Abraham does this theological exploration. Let me just read you these verbs here and subjects. O Lord, will you not spare the place for the sake of the righteous? Will you not spare the whole city for the sake of the few righteous? Here's how his reasoning goes. He says, I'm not saying to you, O Lord, you're righteous, and they deserve judgment. But you know, just this once, wouldn't it be right if you just sort of gave them a break, please? No, he says, the God of all the earth must do right. He knows he can't do that. He can't say, oh God, lay aside your righteousness. But here's what he is saying. Your love, you love righteousness so much, would it not be possible if there was a little righteous minority, you love righteousness so much, could you not, for your love of righteousness and righteous people, Give them grace this time to the whole city. And this is amazing. He's so innovative. He's theologically looking at every opportunity and asking a big question. You're just, and you're righteous, but you're also loving. Because of your love, could you not give them grace one, t- one more day, one more year and not kill them? Abraham says, Oh Lord, wouldn't it be possible that the righteousness of a few might transfer and save the many? Isn't it possible that in spite of our bad record, you would love a righteous group of people in the city so much for their sake, you'd forgive everyone else? That way you could be both righteous and honor righteousness, but at the same time, saving the undeserving. Isn't that possible? Can't, can't we explore this option, God? Over and over again, he says, couldn't the righteousness of these people over here save the thousands of unrighteous folks over here? Couldn't it be imputed somehow for these few groups of people that are righteous, that that would protect and save those who are living in sin? And Abraham is blown away when God says, yeah, let's do it. When God says, yeah, for 50, if there's 50 righteous people, yeah, I won't destroy the city. And then Abraham's like, okay, how about 45? And God's like, yeah, for 45 righteous people over here, I won't destroy the thousands over here. And then Abraham's like, okay, let's go down to 40. Let's not get too crazy. Let's just take this slow. And then God says, yes, for 40 righteous people, I'll save the thousands. Okay, how about 30? Yeah, for 30 righteous people, I'll save and pardon the thousands who are in sin. Okay, how about 20? And God says, yes, yes. For 20 righteous people in two cities of thousands of people, I'll spare them. And then it gets down to 10, and God says yes. And the most amazing thing happens in the entire Bible. The prayer ends, and Abraham goes home. Like, wait wait a minute. We, We all thought, as you're reading the narrative, this was a selfish prayer. We all thought Abraham was praying to get down to the four and to the one, his nephew, Lot. We expect Abraham here at the very end to say, Oh Lord, let me speak just once more. Would you save the whole city for the sake of one righteous person? Just one. But Abraham never asks that question and God never gives the answer. Abraham knows. Abraham knows he doesn't have a truly righteous person in the city. And if you know anything about Lot when the messengers get there and the whole town of men come after him and, hey, let's have our way with those guys. Lot's like, here's my two unmarried daughters. Have your way with them. It's like, dude, Lot definitely wasn't righteous. That's just the small glimpse we get of him. Guess what? Abraham's not righteous either. He knows it. I don't qualify. So Abraham comes up to this impenetrable wall or this mountain range that you can't pass, but he sees a path and he's like, Oh. and he looks at this wall and he's like, I think there's a couple little finger holes I could climb, but I'm not able to scale that. But if there is a God of justice and righteousness, what hope is there for you and me because who can stand before him? As we see, there's this God who's both just and loving and righteous. And if there isn't that righteous and just God, there's no hope for the world. But if there is, there's hope. But who can stand before him? Because we're all in sin. He's found a path. He's found this impenetrable face of rock that needs to be climbed to get, but he can't do it. And so many centuries later, we see someone did come along who could walk that path who could climb that rock face. And as Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, the undeserving city, he acted as a priest. He stood in front of God on behalf of the people, and he made intercession for them, but he couldn't pull it off. Abraham just prayed for the people who might have killed him. The Canaanites were always attacking him and trying to kill him, and he prays for them. He prays for Sodom and Gomorrah the Canaanites, he prayed for the people who might have killed him. But when Jesus came many centuries later, when Jesus is our high priest, who not only stands as an intercessor in between us and God, but he's the one that can walk that path of righteousness perfectly without sin. He's the one who could scale that in scalable wall to God because he's perfect. And he's the high priest who went to the cross. And when he was on the cross, he was praying for the people that weren't just attacking him, but were literally killing him. He said, Father, forgive them as they struck him and beat him. And as he hung on the cross, he said, I, they don't fully realize what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Abraham risked his life by going to God in order to plea that God would save the people. But Jesus Christ willingly gave his life so that those in sin separated from God would be In him and be saved. Abraham kept saying, I'm representing these people, but don't be mad at me. But Jesus Christ represented us and took the whole world's wrath that God had been stored up for the world and he took God's justice into his own heart. What does that mean? That he paid the penalty for our sins, that that one act that one righteous man that Abraham was getting down to and realized, I can't go lower than 10. There's no way. I'm not it. Lot's not it. Jesus was the one. So we see that Jesus came. In verse 23, there's a word that Abraham says. Abraham approached God. Do you know what that word is? It's a technical legal word. It's a word that refers to an attorney approaching the judge with a case. It's approaching the bench with a case. Abraham came with a case, and he didn't do a bad job, but he couldn't take it all the way. But Jesus Christ, we're told, is the ultimate high priest in Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 10. And he stands before the bar of divine justice representing you and me, and he has an infallible case. What is the case? It's like this, Father says Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but I've paid that wage. I've died. Now, Father, spare them. I'm the one righteous. Spare the many unrighteous who believe in my payment for their sin. Forgive them. Receive them. They know me and I know them. Do not despise them despite your justice, but because your justice has been satisfied in me. I paid it all now love them and spare them, not in spite of your justice, but because of it. Your justice was satisfied in me because of what I've done. And they're no longer guilty. They're free. This is a perfect lock tight case. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He is able to save all who call upon him. And that's the amazing reality that Abraham was able to appeal to God's righteousness, and his justice. Abraham was able to go to God by faith and make these bold claims, and he realized, man, I need a Savior. I'm learning about who God is, but I'm not able to fully and perfectly follow him. So we see God's response to Abraham reveals both his justice and his mercy. We see that God is having this interaction as, as they're going along the way. Many of us feel like we can't pray or we, we can't really come to church. We can't really know God because I need to know the prayers. I need to know the songs. I need to know this and you know that. And here Abraham has this continual coffee day lunch conversation with God and he's figuring God out. And the more he figures God out, the more he realizes I'm such a loser. He's like, hey, I'm going to have this prayer and as it goes, it starts to unravel and you think, man, he's going to get down and he's like, I can't ask for him to save me or a lo- lot. Like, this is no, We're- we should be dead. I shouldn't even be talking to you. I'm going home and the prayer is over. But God responds, revealing his justice and his mercy, pointing once again to Jesus. Do you understand? Abraham at this point points to Jesus, who is the true Abraham. Every time we read the Bible, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, David, they all fail and leave us hungry and wanting Jesus. That's the whole point of the story. That's the whole point of God saying, I'm going to do this for this people, and you're not going to get it because you need Jesus to get it. You need the Holy Spirit to get it, and that's going to come later. And as we see the words of God focus on the character and actions of God, it builds our faith so that by faith we can pray big prayers. He knew there must be a way, and even knowing that was enough to give Abraham this incredible, vital relationship with God. But you know how it happened. You have the gospel. Once you have that, you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There are these few things we see in closing. First, if you understand the gospel, that you're so wicked and lost, God had to die for you on the cross. Yet you're so loved that God was glad to die for you. So the first shows you that you're a sinner And the second shows you that you're so loved in your sin. You didn't change. You didn't fix it. You didn't look better. You didn't have this 75 days to get your life better and eat healthier and and do your workouts and not drink alcohol. You came to Jesus and said, look, I'm an alcoholic. I'm broken. Everything's a mess. And he says, I know. Now I can change you. I know you're living in sin. I know you're living selfishly. And I know you need me. Now now that you know you need me, I, I can come to you and you can follow me. And it's going to be messy, and you're not going to do it perfectly, but you're going to make progress. The first one is when you see you're so wicked that God had to die for you, it humbles you. And the second, you're so loved that God is glad to die for you, it emboldens you, and now you have the extremes that Abraham had. And even more so because you have the Spirit living inside of you. On the one hand, you're in awe before God so great Galaxies are like dust in the scales of his hands. And yet he cares for you. The infinite cost to himself, giving his son to die in your place. If you say, oh, I believe in a God of love, that's not a love that melts you, not a love that electrifies you or destroys you and brings you to tears. That's not a love that gives you this incredible, lively prayer. But if you see God's love in the form of Jesus dying on the cross, that is what cuts you to the core. That's what exposes all of your sin and realizes he paid for all of that and he understands it. Then we understand the gospel and it creates this incredible humility and boldness. This combination of humility and boldness that Abraham had to pray to God in this way. Real prayer is always a response to what God says. So when God says, here's what I'm gonna do, Abraham responds. Wait a minute, aren't you righteous? Aren't you just, but also merciful? Let's explore these characteristics together. If you you understand the gospel in every story, in every law, in every promise, in every poem in scripture, you see that it's always speaking about Jesus, about the gospel, and our need for Jesus. The gospel gives you the relationship with God that Abraham had, but it gives us a better relationship, a deeper one, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have God in us. Secondly, the gospel gives you an attitude toward the world like Abraham had. When you see the world, you don't run away from it. Jesus said, hey God, I pray that because of the church, because of those who follow me, the whole world's going to know. And then they're going to grow in their relationship with me, and you, Father, and each other, and the whole world's going to see their love for us and for them. And then they're going to go share the gospel with the whole world and they're going to be persecuted and they're going to have, if you read in Hebrews 10, it's like, yeah, you loved having everything plundered and stolen from you because you're a Christian, because you follow Christ, because you have the opportunity to share. So the gospel gives us this attitude toward the world that Abraham had. It's not that the good are in and the evil are out. The gospel is that the humble who admit that they're evil, and who realize they need Jesus to be their savior, and they begin to follow him. The humble who admit their evil are in, and the proud who won't admit their evil are out. Do you know what that means? It means the gospel gives you the ability to define evil. You're not a relativist, but it destroys the oppressive superiority of moralistic people. When a relativist doesn't define evil, it says, "Ah, oh, whatever. Your truth is your truth. But once you define evil, now through the gospel, we can define it. And we can also be humbled enough that we're not a moralist and have a superiority. Well, I'm not like that person. I'm better than that. Now we can fight evil while at the same time willing the good for our whole city. You'll finally get this attitude toward the city that Abraham had because it's the heart of God. He wants Abraham to see, yeah, I want to save, but they have to believe in Jesus, my Savior. Last of all, we need to approach God the way Abraham did with these God-sized requests. Just save the whole city. Save two whole cities because of 10 righteous people. When have we prayed like that? When have we said, man, this whole county needs to know you. This whole state needs to know you. And we're going to be a part of it, God. Let's go. Make it happen. Have you been praying for the city to know Jesus? Have you been praying for the state, the county, the country, the world to know Jesus. And what's your role? I want more. I want more. I want more. I don't want just 20% off board shorts. I want the world to know you. And I want opportunities to share the gospel because of your justice and your mercy compel me to pray that you'd save them. Yeah, I know they attacked my herd and they killed all my goats and my fourth wife and they tried to kill me, but I want you to save them. Like, Abraham prayed that prayer. When have you been like, man, I know everything's bad, but I just want you to save them. I know they keep attacking me, but I just pray you'd save them. The passage asks God for big things, boldly pleading with God. As we see, C.S. Lewis rightly says this, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. When the messengers came to Lot and they said, Hey, you, you got to get out of here. We're destroying. It says Lot lingered. Lot's like, oh, one more trip to in and out Man, I got to get Chick-fil-A. One more taste. One more tri-tip sandwich. One more time in the city. Just going to walk around the block once more. He lingered. Abraham had said, God, save two cities. And Lot lingered. Where is your heart towards the Lord today? Are you lingering in this world? Do you love the world so much that you're like, I know God's telling me what to do. Many of you have said that prayer. God, tell me what to do. You're going to be like Lot. He's going to tell you what to do and you're going to linger. You're going to go, I know I should do that, but I'll, maybe tomorrow. I just one more day doing what I want in the city, in the world. Look at how much I have. I'm going to enjoy this. One more. You're going to destroy Okay, one more day. No. Abraham's like, you're going to destroy it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. Save them. Because of your character, God. Are you so in love with Jesus that you know his character, that you're intimately, passionately, recklessly, boldly saying, God, you got to save. You got to save the city and I want to be a part of it. See, Abraham went home, but because God's in us now, we go to the city and we proclaim the gospel because we know our home isn't a tent. Our home is in heaven. And you know God has all the cards, that he has all the power and you no, he has all the love in the world for you. That means you're gonna go after the problems of the world because all of your problems are taken care of. So now that you have no problems, you see the world's problems and you go, I have the answer, he, he solved all my problems. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Aren't you a Christian? Well, that's a loaded and watered down and very ineffective. You can call me what, I'm actually trying to follow Jesus. Can I introduce you to Jesus? But first, are you praying by faith that God will give you the opportunity to say, yeah, I follow Jesus. I don't want to do it perfectly, but because of God's grace, I can follow Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. You're going to go after the big things, knowing God's heart, that he's both just and a justifier. He's the justice of God, the righteousness of God with the mercy of God. Is that directing your prayers? As we... Look at Jesus again as the one who satisfied the wrath of God. That when we take communion as believers, some of you are going, man, I thought they were all about them." No, we're so aware of how depraved and wretched we are. We need Jesus. And so as we gather every week, we go, let's look again to Jesus who saved us. Let's look again at why we're trying to follow Jesus because he's, paid the price for our sin. So don't live in sin any longer. Hebrews says, why are you going to go and sin when you've accepted the payment, when he stood in your place and he's delivered the case to the judge and said, look, I know they're guilty, but I paid their debt. I paid the wage that was owed. They're free now. And as we go again to the throne as believers, We want you to join us if you've not believed in Jesus. We want you to know that you can go to the throne of God as Abraham did, but with more confidence because of the blood that washes your sin away by simply believing that Jesus is the only righteous one, the only one who's righteous that would take away your sin and in place give his spirit. And so as we go again to the throne, we invite those to believe in him now who have not and those who do believe to join us and, and pray with that boldness pray for that god size prayer god i know you needed to die for me and i'm thankful for that love and i'm so humbled by your grace i pray that others would know that may we pray for the city pray for your family pray these big prayers that god would use you in a mighty way and i'll come up and, and close us